0: Let's hear God's Word. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of, for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue. For you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook at Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Karathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag he spent he sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. For it was those in Bethel and Ramath of the Negev and Jatir and Aror, in Sifmoth, Esh, Timoah, and in Rakal, and in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Bor Ashan, in Akath, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Thus far, we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. We have here an accounting of what's happened with David uh, down as he traveled among the Philistines. You remember in chapter 29, he had gathered with the armies of the Philistines, and now he was. Uh, Departing from them and returning to his base camp. And he finds this trouble. The story's been alternating between Saul, the current king, the king that God rejects. And David, the anointed king, whom God has called to replace Saul. The story's alternated back and forth. Saul had seen that gathering of the Philistine army and he had panicked. And he was seeking help. David comes home to Ziklag, this little town in, uh, amongst the Philistines, and he is uh, seeking help. And whereas Saul sought help from a medium at a seance, which the Lord had forbidden, David properly seeks the Lord's help and finds his strength in the Lord. Saul finds no strength. And goes hopelessly into the night and the next day in battle, he will die, said the Lord. David, who had sought the Lord, heard from the Lord's own lip that he would rescue those he goes after. What do you do when you need to summon spiritual strength? That's not just a title. That's partly my burden as a preacher to you, as a pastor to you. Do you know what to do when the phone rings and there's horrible news? Do you know what to do when you wake up and something's different? Trouble comes near to you. Do you know how to find your strength in the Lord? especially if your elders aren't there or your Christian friends aren't present. It's not an academic exercise. It's what Christians need to do. And God has written his book to prepare his people for life in this world. The Lord told Peter and Peter wrote it to his people. He said, God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. God's book is sufficient to equip you for life in this broken world. Whether we think the times are unprecedented or you something you couldn't have imagined is happening, God's word is sufficient. And God's ways are the ways you, where you will find strength and help in the hour of need. So the sermon, I want to just quickly summarize the story, what we're seeing, and make a few comments, but then jump in and focus on verse 6. That phrase... So nobody misses it. But first, let's summarize the story here as chapter 30 is unfolded, because the truth of verse 6 happens in a context. And the context is that David and his men have, have, have been miraculously freed from an obligation to fight alongside the Philistines. We remember that. And he would have faced a crisis. Do I fight against King Saul and the people of Israel with God's enemies? Or in the midst of the battle, do I fight for Saul and turn against the Philistines? It was, a, it was a dilemma. We don't know exactly what David had planned because David wasn't exactly walking in step with the Spirit of God. He had been doing a lot of things of his own mind's making. And he'd been away from uh, the people of God and the things of God for a year and a half. And so when he gets out of that situation, takes a three-day walk down to this village where he and his men and their families had been staying in enemy territory. They had this little village called Zikleg. They come and they see it blackened from fire. You could tell at a distance something was wrong. And they perceived that it had been attacked. Well, they were gone. And we read the account. And they begin weeping uncontrollably. Their loved ones Gone. The people they were charged to protect were gone. And even then, David's grief grows greater. Not only is he grieving his family's missing, but all of a sudden people are pointing fingers at the leader. This is your fault, David. And they want to stone him. I don't know what kind of solution that would have brought about. But in their grief and in their anger, they're lashing out and it's falling on David. You know, this grievous situation begs the question, why did did God allow that? And isn't that the question that comes pretty much on the heels of every crisis? Lord, why? Why this? Why now? Right, that's, that's the question. And I think the question was very intentionally on David's mind. And I think, just to be as concise as possible, that the Lord was using this providential affliction. God had allowed this to happen to awaken David. David to awaken a wayward servant, to summon him to fresh faith in obedience. We know from the New Testament passage very clearly that God disciplines those whom he loves. And this hardship is brought to David and to his men to, to, to remind them of the rule of God over the world and his demands upon their life that they should serve him. Commentators suggest a lot of other purposes and reasons. We're not going to go into that now. We may revisit those later on. But I think God does have a very clear purpose in everything he does. And he works all things together for ultimate good and for his glory. So this grievous situation has a purpose. And we'll see as we study verse 6 that it brings about grace and guidance for David. We'll talk about how that happens. God supplies David with what he needs to lead the rescue mission and to quash the discontent afterwards. And you see him again regaining his grip on being king-like, for he will soon be king. And we end the summary by mentioning that David's victory was not only over the enemies, the Amalekites, but we see that David's uh, victory included a a put-down of this insurrection uh, when the people were were stressing against one another. The people that didn't fight don't get anything. So David acts uh, with justice and with generosity, even sending some of the spoil to the villages in Judah, villages that had once... Protected him when he was on the run and in the caves and in the wilderness. That's, that's the setting. And at the heart of the, the change in the passage is this phrase in verse 6. is worth underlining to remind yourself that, that this turns the corner. And the, the English word but, that negating conjunction, is often one of the most theologically significant words in the Bible. Did you know that? The word but. All this is happening, but David strengthened himself in Jehovah, his God. Well, before I explain what that is, let's take a look at what that is not. Because a lot of spiritual people, a lot of evangelical Christians, you and I, are prone to, to take shortcuts for strength. Spiritual Red Bull, or whatever else we want to grab just to get through the moment. Things that this is not, and I just have three. Strengthening yourself in the Lord is not some superficial quick fix, spiritual abracadabra. Oh, that's right, i got to read the 23rd Psalm, or i got to pray Psalm 51, or I've got to... My friends... There shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction to a crisis or a hardship as though spiritual fixes and spiritual strength were like taking a Red Bull or a power drink or extra caffeine or whatever. God is not to be manipulated. His word is not there uh, simply to, to have this superficial or superstitious role in your life. Crying out to the Lord is not like rubbing a bottle hoping a genie comes out and you get wishes and things get better. Yes, I know sometimes people have been wandering from the Lord. Perhaps you, you've done this or you know the story. They, they kind of come to their senses. They start reading their Bible and they find help. God helps through his word. His word will revive the parched soul. It will give light to dim eyes. God's word does all that. But let's not act superficially or superstitiously. Let's not pull out the, the evangelical version of prayer beads or rub some talisman. That's not what David did. Even though the verse and the phrase is so short, he strengthened himself. He's not just tightening his bootlaces. Or polishing his sword or spear. There's something greater happening. And we need to slow down and see what it's not first. So it's not this superficial, I got to grab something fast. And it's not simply a clear your head moment. I want to say, secondly, strengthening yourself in the Lord is not just emotionally or mentally doing something. Quite clear your head moment. Like, okay. And, and I, I, I know my own habits. When some chaos is going on, I immediately kind of shut down the, the music or the TV so I can all of a sudden give it full attention. I got to hear, I got to get, get all the information I need. And it's not just uh, uh, setting up uh, 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 mental barricades. Okay, I got to figure this out. That's not, that's, David's not strengthening himself in himself. The crisis isn't about you showing off all your capabilities. If it's something the Lord is doing to call you to fresh faith in him. It's not just clearing your head. And, and, and two phrases I'm putting under this heading. This, this mental barricading or uh, emotional venting. Sometimes, okay, uh, oh, that, that situation makes me so angry. I'll just, uh, I'll go out back and scream and then I'll come back in and I can handle it. We have these coping mechanisms. And, and and strengthening yourself in the Lord is not about your favorite coping mechanism. Let me direct you just to one story where someone uh, started putting up some mental barricades when there was danger. And that, we, you don't have to turn to the book of Esther. If you know the story of Esther, uh, there was trouble coming upon the Jewish people. But she happened to be married to the king and his harem and she... Uh, you know, was not sure if she should take action, and this crisis was looming, and I think she had this mental barricading coming up. And then her uncle Mordecai uh, says this, Esther 4 verse 13, the uncle says this, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. Mental barricading isn't the safest technique when trouble comes. And the wise words of this relative help Esther reevaluate. And she does find strength. And she does something beautiful and bold and courageous. Thank God for Esther. So, strengthening yourself in the Lord isn't a quick grabbing of something, it isn't a clearing of your head or some kind of mental activity. And thirdly, it's not this resignation of heart, it's not a stoic acceptance of your fate. I once uh, was in a hospital with a man whose leg was about to be amputated due to diabetes. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a Christian realist. This is just the way it's going to be. And, and the language of this Christian realist testimony smacked of the ancient Stoic philosophers. Or of the famous song by Doris Day. "K, Sirrah, Sirrah, whatever will be, will be pretty song, but a bad philosophy. God reigns. God rules. God calls us to obedience. God calls us to exercise faith. God calls us to uh, fight temptation and sin and to serve him and so many things. Stoicism is not taught in the Bible. You don't, if a crisis comes, how do you strengthen yourself? Well, I steel myself to simply Except perfect submission, all is at rest. And we we do something where we just resign ourselves. We kind of unplug. This is too much for me. I'm not going to do anything when the crisis comes my way. That can happen. I think it happens a lot to unbelievers. But believers have a Lord and a shepherd. And the sheep just don't sit. They follow the Shepherd. They remember the shepherd's instructions. To steel yourself is to make yourself ready for something difficult or unpleasant. To fill yourself with determination and courage. As an example, Merriam-Webster, he steeled himself for the final interview. That's not what David's doing. Well, some of you must say, Pastor, you know, part of the Bible does sound like Stoic philosophy. Let me remind you that there's a beautiful book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, right after the book of Proverbs. It's part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Ecclesiastes is not often read, but it's a valuable book. We believe it to be written by King Solomon later in life when he's learned a lot the hard way. Some of its poetry might sound odd to us. It says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And it may sound stoic, but it's not stoicism. It's a beautiful book. And let me just remind you how the book ends, okay? Because I think some Christians fall on this as their excuse to be indifferent or stoic. The book of Ecclesiastes ends. Let me just read these verses from chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making of many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's no stoicism there. It reminds us to use and study and understand the Proverbs and the truths of the scriptures and bring them to bear on life and to fear God most of all, Obey and love him and do our duty. That's not stoicism. So how, how did David strengthen himself in the Lord? There's just that little phrase, right? That's all we know. No, that's not all we know. Let's not be hasty Americans in just looking at the verse and moving on. Let's be Bible students, be Bereans. It, it uses a word, strengthen himself in the Lord. That phrase we've heard already in this same book of the Bible. So we'll learn something from that. We know that this verse is followed by some actions. Verses 7 and 8 explain what he does. So when you hear that word strengthen yourself in the Lord, don't just think, you know, John Wayne or the other shortcuts that we've dismissed. Let's see what the Bible tells us to do to summon spiritual strength. And before I get into the the three points, I I snuck in a prerequisite. You can probably see a little extra bullet point in the outline. Uh, There's a prerequisite here. In order to find strength in the Lord, do you know what the prerequisite is? You need to have a relationship with the Lord. You need to have a relationship with the Lord. You need to have access. And it may be a previous relationship uh, that's fallen on hard times because you've wandered away from the Lord. But you need to recover that. You need to be in relationship to gain anything from the other. Correct? And it needs to be a right relationship. So I think in the moments of verse 6, just at the word but, as David is turning the corner, if he's going to obtain strength, it means what? It means that he understands he has a relationship with the Lord. And he realizes it hasn't always been a right relationship. He's been wayward He's not even in Israel anymore. He's been helping the Philistines. He nearly went to war against his own people. That relationship required, David, I'm convinced, to confess. To be contrite. To go through those exercises of the heart, says one. Conviction, uh, contrition, confession. Those necessarily precede comfort and consolation. In order to find strength. Think of the child. Something's happened and they need help. And they want to run to mom and dad. They need to have a mom and a dad to run to. They need to know where mom is. She's in the kitchen. And if you've been away in time out and something happens. And you come back. You say, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But mom, I need some help. You see that correct relating is a prerequisite. If there's no repentance... David will simply be exercising his religion in the next couple of verses. If he's not right with God, the Bible says it's your sins that have separated you from God. God's arm is not too short to help you. The problem, if there's a disconnect, it's on your part. So you need to repent. You need to confess, Lord, I've not been what you wanted me to be. I've disobeyed you. I've sinned. Others may not know my sin, but I know my sin and I want to be in a right relationship with you. Forgive me. I think all these things are happening as David is weeping. Men are pointing fingers at him and yelling at him. And perhaps the hours of sitting there amidst the rubble, seeing what his own wisdom and his own work have brought him to. And I think he is convicted, he's contrite and he confesses. There's repentance here. That word but shows us what's happening in David's life. The great Saint Augustine said, Before God can deliver us, we must undeceive ourselves. So that's a prerequisite. And maybe that's where someone here is today. Before you can find the strength, you need to do that confessing and repenting. Okay. Okay. So if you are in a relationship with the Lord and some difficulty comes upon you and you're sitting amongst the ruins, what do you do? Number one, you remember the promises of God's word. You remember what God has spoken. When you're trying to make sense of what you're seeing, what you're feeling and everything that's changing, go to that which does not change. Do you know the slogan, the motto of our church? It's on our sign out front and sometimes it's on our documents proclaiming the unchanging word of God in a changing world. My friends, that's a message the whole world needs. They need the unchanging word of God because the times seem to be changing pretty fast and people are in turmoil. If you're a believer and something comes upon you suddenly, turn to that which does not change, the word of God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises will be kept. So I'm saying that what David does in verse 6, when he strengthens himself in the Lord, the first thing he does is he begins to remember God's word and the promises. Where do I see that? Am I just kind of reading that into the text? Preachers say what they want? No. I'm looking at the verse and it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. And it recalls a phrase and an activity where Jonathan did this for David, and taught David how to find strength in the Lord. Turn with me back to chapter 23. Chapter 23, it may seem like weeks ago, because it was many weeks ago, that we looked at the story. Jonathan was a godly man, the son of Saul, but he became a dear friend, a a heart friend, a best friend to David. They loved the Lord together in such a deep and powerful way. Um, Jonathan was much older, so he was like an uncle. He was like a mentor. And in chapter twenty-three, beginning of verse sixteen, this is what we read, and the same language is employed. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Okay, there's that same phrase. But how did Jonathan do it? Here we're told, verse seventeen, and he said to him, "Do not fear." For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Jonathan spoke to David the promises of God concerning his future. God had anointed David and said, you're going to be king. God made that promise. Is God going to keep that promise? Uh, David's in a burned out hovel. His family's gone. What's he going to do now? Is he ever going to be king? Well, God did promise. God's word told me what was ahead. It's a supernatural promise from God just for David. That's a great promise to know exactly what God's will is for your life. The Bible contains sufficient truths, though, to tell us about life ahead. And it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Walk in the light. Walk as children of God. Don't think as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, but think this way. Set your mind on things above. We're given all sorts of commands and guidance and promises. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he wants every Christian to hear those words. Jesus is a faithful savior. He will not save you to let you slip through his hands. If you're in a relationship with him, he is the shepherd who will not let you go. Do you know the promises of God's word? Jonathan here strengthened David's hand. He taught him that. Oh, maybe you say, I, I've never had a Jonathan alongside me. Well, the church is filled with some mature Christians. Strike up a friendship. Friendship. Let the mature Christians instruct the younger, the men, uh, the younger men, the older women, the younger women. Let's do what Christians should be doing. And whether or not you have a human mentor or companion or counselor, let me remind you what Jesus said to his disciples before he departed. In the final evening together with his disciples, he was teaching them. And in John's gospel, it's recorded that I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will send you a comforter, and they uses the Greek word parakletos. One like a paralegal, one that means called alongside. He'll be a comforter, a counselor, a guide, a strengthener to your soul. The Holy Spirit is our Jonathan. The Holy Spirit is with every believer to remind us of God's word. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, to remember the promises of God's word, you've got to know them. You should be reading your Bible, laying the groundwork now. You don't know when that day of trouble will come. What would you do if someone took away your Bible? Do you know enough of what it contains to sustain your faith? I like this story. I can't remember where I read it this week, but one of the great preachers in Scotland from the 1800s, Andrew Bonar, it was October 15th, 1864. Uh, this dear brother was having his devotions and he read in Nahum 1-7. I'll tell you the story. You can actually look up Nahum 1-7. It'll take you a minute. Uh, he, in his devotions, he read Nahum 1-7. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. And later that day, his wife of 17 years was giving birth. But in those hours, uh, she died in childbirth. And later in the day, he was writing in his diary of the grievous wound that he had received through the death of his wife. And he also noted in his diary that he had been meditating hours before on Nahum 1-7. Why does he mention that in his diary? Because he knew how to strengthen his own soul in the Lord. He knew that he needed that word. To sustain him and to remind him of truth, even as his family was taken from him. Nahum 1 7 The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God's word for Andrew that morning kept his heart from failing. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's my life verse. You know how I cling to that. Do you cling to God's word? Do you remember God's word? Does it give you spiritual strength? Can you summon his word to your mind and say, listen to the word of God? Micah 7. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemies. Though I have fallen, I will arise. My God... Will deliver me. You need to know the promises of the Word and to find strength, draw upon them. God's Word is truth. God's Word can pierce through all the, the the deceiving emotions and the troubling emotions. It can get to the heart of the matter. God's Word is effective and powerful. God's Word itself brings faith to those who need it, and David found fresh faith on this day. But there's another step. He not only remembered the word of God and strengthened himself as Jonathan taught him, but he began leaning upon the Lord. I like the word leaning, so I'm putting in leaning. He uh, took time to access God's wisdom. He sought out God. He used the means at his disposal to inquire of the Lord. That's where verses seven and eight follow. So David here, get back to chapter 30. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord. We'll talk about the ephod in a minute. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue. For you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue. David it's good to hear your voice again. I'm so glad David that you you're calling upon me in the day of trouble that I might deliver you and through your own hand deliver your wife and children and those of your people. God couldn't wait it seems to bless David. David leans upon the Lord he goes to him he seeks guidance via the means that were available to him. Now I know some preachers would love to delight their audience for many minutes on what the ephod was and how we think it was used and how this all worked. You can read in the books of Moses about how the high priest had access to this and Abathar was a priest and God had arranged for him to join David and his band and there was an ephod there. So let's just say David had access and we don't know exactly how it worked, but he used that. He reaches out to the Lord to lean upon him actively, not just to remember the word, but to let this awakened faith begin to seek God's help. We could say he began to pray. Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two: cast your burden on the Lord and he will deliver you. David heard from God as he leaned upon God, as he sought guidance. Sometimes we say, oh, I should pray about this. And it's the last thought that comes to our mind here. It seems to be David's first or second thought that he would pray that he would seek God's help Lord what would you have me do now remember David's a military guy he had been raiding and been having success on the left and the right he had a little army with him he doesn't say saddle up until he talks to his Lord if you're going to find spiritual strength you need to talk to the Lord. You need to pray about it. When you hear troubling news and you go, oh no, I, I, so-and-so is in the hospital, something terrible has happened. Prayer is a wonderful first response. Even to say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to process this news. I turn to you. There's a third way that David strengthens himself in the Lord by exercising his faith, his faith in the Lord as obedience, as active trust. He remembers, he hears the Lord, he speaks to the Lord, and he obeys the Lord. He, he steps, the Lord says, pursue. The answer comes in the imperative, pursue. So verse 9, David set out. He saddled up. He knew what the Lord would have him do, and he did it. Sometimes we seek help from the Lord. Lord, what do I do in this crisis? And he guides you to the answer, and you go, well, is there a plan B? That that sounds kind of humbling. That sounds kind of difficult. We hem and we haw, and we want to think about it. Faith in the Lord. You've turned to him for guidance. Believe his word. Obey his word. A.W. Pink uh, uh, This preacher, I can't remember, I think he was born in Scotland and died in Scotland, but he was in the USA for many years, A.W. Pink, said, Oh, Christian, when we are at our wit's end, we should not be at faith's end. See to it that all is right between your soul and God, and then trust in his sufficiency. There needs to be an act of trust. You need to perform your faith. You need to let your faith be alive and well. Faith without works is dead if we've read the book of James. So David gains strength by exercising that faith. He says, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey. Because my faith isn't just on the lips. It's real. And it's going to bear fruit if I get going. Isn't it interesting? Different persons under same trials can have divergent effects. A lot of people return to Ziklag, but only one is praying about what to do next that we know of. The other men had their own idea. I'm really mad. Let's stone David. Yeah, let's blame him. Let's shift blame. That'll make us feel better. Different people can go through the exact same crisis and respond in different ways. The person of faith is called to trust and walk by faith in the midst of that. Indeed, I think it was William Blakey who said, if you're really trusting God, this is true. Better, far better, to be in the midst of the black ruins of Ziklag, surrounded by a threatening mob, better than to be in the ranks of the Philistines fighting against his own people. When you finally get right before the Lord and find your strength in him, That's the place you want to be. Blakey goes on to say, In that hour of utmost need, David was able to derive strength from the thought of God to be able to think of the Most High as watching him with interest and still ready to deliver him. God said, pursue. I've confessed. I'm right with God. I, I will pursue. I've only got these 600 guys. And he gets to the creek and to go down the steep ravine. And up the other side was too much for a lot of guys who'd been traveling. So 200 stay behind. And 400 go chasing after the Amalekites. The Amalekite army was pretty big. We know that because the, the remnant that escaped was 400 youth on camels. So there were hundreds of Amalekites, more than the band of David. But David, by faith, pursued because God said Pursue. Engage, go, do, trust. His God was with him this time. David strengthened himself in the Lord in all those ways. Remembering the word. Well, first he had to have a relationship. But remembering the word, leaning upon the Lord, and we might think of prayer, and then obeying and trusting, exercising that faith. That's how you'll be strong in the Lord. Well, in closing, I wanted to highlight a couple of things that uh, are, are here in the text as well. And I think they're great encouragements and exhortations as we wrap up. So three things I don't want you to forget. Forget not God's grace. There is grace in this story, even though you don't see the word. And it's sweet and it's beautiful. And if you're struggling to learn from David and find your strength in the Lord, don't forget God's grace. What did David say after they won the great victory? The whole crowd saying, "Oh, David, this is David's spoil," and they're all cheering and doing the dance and talking, talking up David. You heard the line, "This is David's spoil." David doesn't think that way. He knows that this is what the Lord has given. He knew that God, by His grace, had given the victory. God, by His grace, had given them the spoils, and not just their own people back—the wives and the children. And their own flocks and herds, but the flocks and herds from the other raids. They had their own and more. And when they get back to the little creek and they find the guys that were staying behind and trouble erupts. Somebody in the congregation, I mean, not the congregation, someone in the army of David said, shared their theology of works and said, You know, David, we're the ones that did all the work. We should get the blessing. You know, we should keep. Those guys didn't work. They shouldn't eat. They shouldn't get the spoils. David says, we're not going to use a theology of works right now. Because God graciously gave us all these things. So they will share as part of us. And beyond just sharing with the 200 men who are by the creek, David sends From that bounty to all the little villages in southern Judah that had also just been raided. Some probably getting back their flocks and herds. And some say, oh, David was just doing that because he was going to be king and he wanted political advantage. No, I think he cared for those people as much as he did for the men by the baggage. David's generosity flows from his awareness of the grace of God. How can you turn the other cheek? How can you do what God calls you to do if you don't understand the grace of God to you and at work in you and through you? Don't forget God's grace. Don't forget, secondly, God's powerful providence. God has a plan and he does things even before you ask. Do you remember the Egyptian in the story? I read one sermon that was all about the Egyptian. That was pretty cool, actually. It's all about the Egyptian. Well, what does the Egyptian have to do with the story? They're chasing down. They're trying to find the Amalekites. Where are you going, David? You're going full speed? What direction? How are you going to find him? There's a lot of desert out there in southern Judah. Well, they might have gone this way. In the midst of the desert, they find this Egyptian slave. Get the guy healthy. Give him some food. And then ask him, you know, who are you? I'm Egyptian, but I was held by the Amalekites. I was part of the raid. They don't kill him. Remember, David's aware of God's grace. And by God's providence, this man could lead them to the hideout of the bad guys. I don't want to even say, what are the odds that they find this slave about to expire? Three days, no food and water, and he was sick on top of it. And they just happened upon this shell of a man who'd been abandoned by his master, who didn't think it was a big deal to keep him alive, and God's providence supplies the strategic link to the rescue. You could be walking by faith. Guess what? God's already know, knows what's going to happen. And he has providence already rolling. It's already underway. So don't be surprised when, when something comes. Oh, look at that. It's, look, look what just happened. I like what Dale Davis says here. Little providences make big differences. Little did that Amalekite master realize that the piece of human machinery he had discarded three days ago would prove his undoing. God's providences make a big difference. You can't predict them and demand them. It's the work of God. But your God knows you and he goes before you. Let his sovereignty be a comfort to you that he can use a variety of means to bless you. And finally, I want to point you to Jesus. Forget not your high priest. Forget not your shepherd, the one who leads and guides you and me. Jesus has called that in Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, faith in Christ. And further, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have help. Lean upon the Lord. Look to him and trust him. Remember his word and walk by faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, our heavenly father, we thank you for this chapter of your word. We're thankful that in history you acted to bring about King David and his descendants, including the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. We thank you that we can learn from David finding strength in you. We thank you that we see your grace at work, your providence at work, and our shepherd at work. Lord, help our faith. May we trust in you all the more. May we obey and show our faith. Father, be particularly with those where the pinch of the crisis is most acute. Father, when worlds collapse and loved ones perish, may you be our strength. When our flesh and our heart may fail, be the strength of our heart and our portion forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.